This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. The moment of truth is upon us, crunch time for Israel's battle over judicial reform, but also with Israel's relationship with the United States. Our special guest today, a man who this week played a central role in that relationship, none other than Pulitzer Prize winning columnist Tom Friedman will be joining us. It's Unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yuni Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Two Jews on the News from Keshe Podcast. How are you, Jonathan? Uh, I'm quite warm. I have turned the fan off because when you and I speak, we do not want the sound of a fan buzzing. As I have mentioned before, slightly envious of my ultra-Orthodox Jewish Haredi neighbors who are the only people on this street with air conditioning units. We don't have that. But look, it's pretty bearable here across the rest of Europe. Just epic heat, epic temperatures. As you know, it's pushed to the forefront, something which doesn't get talked about enough, in my view, which is the climate crisis. I've always felt this is one of those issues that it's not enough for it to be important. It has to be urgent, has to be in people's face right now. Mm -hmm. And in a Europe that is boiling and burning up, you know, they they closed the Acropolis last week for almost the first time in living memory, simply because it was too hot, 48 degrees centigrade at the sort of summit there. Uh, at that site. And, uh, you know, the consequences, people are really feeling them. Yeah, it's not only Europe, it's parts of the United States. I mean, the world is on fire. And uh, the, the paradox here is very strange, because Israel had bearable temperatures for July. It's not yet August, and the, you know, terrible heat wave from Europe hasn't hit us yet, but obviously it will. And obviously, as you say, this is an incredibly urgent problem that the world is not dealing with. Yeah, I mean, the thing that... We're being optimistic right at the top, aren't we? We are right at the start of the thing. But no, there's always one detail that leaps out. Partly it was the Acropolis. There were also reports, you mentioned out in the United States, that in Florida, people were saying the sea, the, the ocean, the water was hitting 90 degrees Fahrenheit. It was this, somebody described it as this sort of steamy syrup is what it felt like. It wasn't, you didn't go in the water to cool off. Our planet is changing. And uh, I think people have always needed to see it right and feel it and feel the heat mm-hmm. to know uh, that uh, to this is something that requires urgent action. In Israel, I've always wondered the extent to which Israel can walk and chew gum at the same time, because Israel has so many other things to deal with. And that are genuinely urgent, that are things that have to be dealt with today. And therefore, mm-hmm. how does Israel deal with a long term, rolling problem like the climate crisis? You know, I, I guess if you did polling, list of issues that affect people or that are most important in Israel among Israelis, climate climate crisis would be very low. Yeah, but still, we're in a region that is supposed to grow uh, hotter than other areas. So I think it's going to become very urgent very soon. It has become uh, something that the national security advisors have been discussing over the years, the effect of the climate change, particularly uh, in the Middle East. By the way, our prime minister uh, suffered dehydration this week. I said it wasn't extremely hot, but uh, it was hot enough for him to be in the hospital for a few hours. He's okay. He's making a lot of headlines elsewhere. We'll get to that. But definitely, you're right about the fact that that Israel's always, for many, many years, related to this is not the most urgent urgent problem. When you have nuclear Iran as an option, you kind of tend to put this in the back burner. But I think we're sort of waking up on that a little bit, I hope. 
Yeah. Um, they always said that JFK uh, had two in-trays on his desk, one marked urgent, the other marked important. And he would tell his advisors, just because it's in the urgent one doesn't mean it's important. You've got to pay attention to the non-urgent <laughs> important. So that's where we are. But listen, in where you are, there's lots that's both that fits in both of JFK's intros, that's both urgent and important. So look, before we get to our uh, guest who's played a central role in some of the events we're going to talk about, why don't you just uh, bring us up to date with what's been happening just in the last few days? Yeah, the heat is up in other issues for sure. So first of all, unless there is a last minute turn of events, and that happens on occasion in this country, the first major part of Netanyahu's judicial overhaul will pass in its second and third reading by this coming Monday. Now, what Netanyahu has said to President Biden in their phone conversation, which we will mention extensively uh, later in our program, he said, it's just going to be this part of the legislation, the reasonableness clause, and then it's going to be the Judicial Appointments Committee, and that's it. Now, what's interesting, first of all, we talked a lot about the Judicial Appointments Committee. It means that the coalition wanted a lot of power in appointing judges, so that is is part of the legislation. The other part, the reasonableness clause, which we also talked to our listeners about, but it means that there will be much less judicial uh, oversight on uh, decisions made by uh, ministers, by administrative authorities in Israel. All this is very important. The interesting thing is that when Netanyahu keeps promising it's just a fraction of my plan, it's still a very significant part of it. And you also have, and this is very, you know, has been becoming the trademark of this government, they tend to say the quiet part out loud, which means they detail all of their plans, right? You have Smotrich saying, oh, yes, we agreed that this is not the end. There's going to be, we're going to continue the legislation. You have Bengvir saying, these are just the hors d'oeuvres. We're going to pass the rest or a lot of the legislation in the next session of the Knesset. So that has a lot of people very concerned. We see the protests and they're going to reach their peak on Sunday and Monday. We see this march from in this sweltering heat, by the way, it still is pretty hot. We were seeing a march from of the protesters from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Yeah, I mean, the, it's interesting you talk about the appetizers because the culinary metaphors have been out in full with this ever since the government decided not to serve up the whole thing, but instead to salami slice the mm -hmm. overhaul package. And in so doing, their gamble, their bet, was that what was unpalatable as a whole would become palatable in little slices. And each slice, you'd say, look, it's no massive deal that we're going to rob the Supreme Court of the power to say this or that action or appointment by the government is unreasonable. Who could be, you know, that's that's a small, modest change. It's procedural. It's technical. <laughs> Similar with the other one about appointments and, and hope to separate them out and smuggle them in mm -hmm. uh, slice at a time. The protesters have not fallen for that. I mean, they do deserve some big credit for that, the people on the streets, the people bear, you know, braving that sweltering heat. Because in other political contexts, other countries, that salami slicing usually works because it divides the coalition that, um, you know, amasses, consolidates in the face of a big reform. It's very hard to bring out hundreds of thousands of people about a little thing, especially if you can call it procedural. Instead, people are out there. But just to clarify, if it, in parliamentary terms, if it clears that second and third reading, it's then the law of the land, right? It's then the law of the land. It's not the final 
chapter written in this book, because remember, the High Court of Justice can still strike down this, even this part of the legislation and say it is unconstitutional and constitutional amendment. That can happen. It can happen very fast. And then again, we are in uncharted territories. We should make just the point of saying the unreasonableness clause is not a small thing. And and again, this coalition has already detailed that if if they get that out of the way, they might try and fire the attorney general. That means a lot of things about the legal advisors in the different ministries in Israel. This is a whole domino effect that the people who are protesting this are afraid of. Now, I want to talk to you about the difference because we mentioned other countries. I think Israel is, is different in, in one major regard, and this is what we're seeing here. And I think I can say that we're going to see more of it in the next couple of days. We are seeing the reservists in the Israeli military up to now, threatening, many of them, especially in the Air Force, threatening not to show up if the judicial overhaul passes. Now, what we have seen for the first time this week is actual action. So 160 officers in the Air Force, reservists, not pilots, but important nonetheless, already not showing up. And that is I think just the tip of the iceberg. We can see more and more of these stories in, in the next couple of days until the legislation passes. There was one story that was published by Friend of the Pod, Mosar Elin in Haaretz, about Colonel Nevo Erez, who was the naval, the, the commander of the naval commando unit. Okay. An incredibly distinguished field commander in the IDF. He's now 57 years old, but still he does, he volunteers for reserve uh, a duty saying, I'm done. Now, this is a man who grew up generations, you know, generations of, of soldiers grew up under his command. This is a very substantial thing. And, and, and the, the argument runs very deep, Jonathan, because what, what is happening here, actually? These uh, uh, reservists are saying, yes, I swore to protect Israel. I swore to even give my life if needed. But I swore to protect a democratic Israel. And if you're changing the contract, if you're changing, fundamentally changing the way this country is made up, I'm not signing the deal anymore. This is very substantial. And on the other side, the sentiment, again, very deep, is saying, wait a minute. I mean, let's pause on this for a second. You have hundreds of officers, reservists in the military, putting pressure on an elected government not to go forward with the legislation. And you're saying this is democracy? Because to many people, it can look like, especially from the outside, but also on the inside, this could look like more like a military coup. So again, this is a, an argument that is so, so, it's burning up in Israel right now. And it, it begs the question, what will be left? I mean, it's a, it's a very troubling question. What will be left of this country, even if this blows over? Even if, you know, this ends in one way or another, these are the camps and this is what they feel. Just think of the tectonic, you know, shift or the tectonic argument here in inside Israel's society. Yeah, I think that's huge. Um, it is why people from the president on down were were invoking uh, the notion of civil war. Mm -hmm. This is very, very serious when people start, when the battle moves into even the military. If people know anything about Israel, they know that the military is in some ways the central institution of the country's national life. Everyone serves. There's conscription for everyone between 18 and 21, male and female. It is the public realm and it is the institution that remains the most trusted. And it has always been outside politics. People have raised it as a fear. What if there is an order? It was always talked about. If there is an Israel-Palestinian peace deal and Israel pulls out of the West Bank, would the army obey the order? Would they take the order? You know, it was seen as something ultimate. And here we are. The political argument is now there. I read that 350 reservists from the IDF cyber units warning Netanyahu the, in a letter published uh, today, the crisis is starting to seep into the 
draft forces and the officer corps stop before it's too late. And uh, statements from the former boss of the Shin Bet intelligence, again, t- issuing more or less the same warning over and over again, yeah. saying, stop, stop, stop. Again. Just one thing I've wanted to ask you uh, for a while, It's um, and it now comes to my mind again. We've talked a lot just now and in previous weeks about the, the army, the reservists, the pilots, senior people who have amazing sort of leverage. But I ask again about the Knesset, and there were two or three or four members of the governing coalition who, at the last point when there was a big standoff, around the time that the defence minister was sacked and then unsacked, Mm -hmm. who said enough to the prime minister, you've got to stop. Two or three sort of backbench names that emerged. Given how small the coalition's majority is, is there any sign of political dissent from them who would, at this last stage, on the brink, potentially deny the Prime Minister the votes he needs on Monday to radically change Israel fundamentally, which is, we should say to us, that is what's at stake here. Any dissent at all, or are those people all going to nod this through? To, to begin to change. Um, I, I think that um, what we saw before this legislation was broken up into small pieces we could have maybe seen what you're asking. I don't think that now what Netanyahu and the Likud spokespeople are trying to to essentially tell the public is this is just one part. And there's a very strong sentiment in the Likud and among Likud voters. Wait a minute. We are elected. We have been elected with a sound majority. And we can't get anything through, anything we want to pass, we are hit by either American pressure, financial pressure, protests, and military pressure. And enough is enough. That is the ruling sentiment. I see less and less chance for someone to dissent if that is the climate. Because again, what they're saying is this is just part of the legislation, but there are always surprises in Israeli politics. It's Israeli politics, right? The uh, impossible becomes inevitable. So so I can't tell you, I, I'm not going to bet 100% that this legislation is going to pass on Monday, but it, it sure looks like that as, as we sit here now. And just a reminder again, the warning that critics of this say is it may look like it's just one clause, but if you get rid of this one protection in which the court can strike things down if they are unreasonable... In the words of one observer, then Israel is no longer, the government of Israel, the prime minister, no longer bound by the restraints of a judicial framework, could do what he liked, he could fire the attorney general, dissolve the relevant committee that appoints judges, even could decree that elections are postponed. That's the warning from Mm -hmm. the critics. They say you need to look at other places where reforms like this have happened. They name Poland, they name Hungary. One of the things that happened in those cases, the sort of Victor Orban model, was yes, attacking the judiciary, but also, uh, once that was done, the media were in their sights. So, Yoni, tell us what's happening where you are. So, completely coincidentally, <laughs> the Minister of Communications, Shlomo Kari, rolled out his plan to uh, reform, that's his uh, term, the media in Israel. I want to just lay out the media map for a moment before uh, saying what his plan is, just so we sort of know what we're talking about. There are three main uh, broadcast channels in Israel. It's channel 11, the public broadcaster Khan, channel 12, where I work, channel 13, both commercial channels. Quick question for my English friend, which has the highest ratings, Jonathan? Your one. 
Thank you, Jonathan. I've taught I've taught you well, young Jedi. It's um, like who is the fairest so, of mirror mirror on the wall? Just, it's facts. It's just facts. I think our it's listeners facts. should should know the facts. Channel um, twelve. So yeah. so those are the three networks. So let's say it's equivalent to NBC, CBS, and ABC in the United States, and they are considered the mainstream television uh, networks. You know that the only difference is in, in Israel that news kind of takes over programming when anything happens. But essentially, these are the the main networks. And there's another new kid on the block called Channel 14. Uh, it's a cable channel. It's very much very popular among Netanyahu supporters. Netanyahu gave his sole interview in Hebrew since getting elected to Channel 14. They're all also those who gave the world the story about the CIA's funding protests to topple Netanyahu. Of course, not a true story. But this is the realm of Fox News, maybe Newsmax. So these are the, this is the media map and enter Shlomo Kari, Minister of Communications. This is his plan. Essentially, dismantle all regulatory bodies and replace them with a body that is largely uh, his appointees. Then to curtail the public uh, broadcaster's revenues and to essentially uh, pass on a lot of the funds to the popular channel, popular in the eyes of the government, Channel 14. Now, all of this, and there's a little bit more in the plan, all of this led to a very rare and coordinated response between all three networks, Channel 11, 12, and 13, saying all of this is an attempt by the minister to crush the free press in Israel. I will add to that, if I may, a quote by Yariv Levine, Justice Minister. We kind of skipped over this a few weeks ago. There was a, a law, attempted legislation to protect journalists against assault. And he opposed this legislation, essentially dropping, the Knesset dropped it. This is what he said. And I quote the Minister of Justice in Israel. He said, Channel 12 and Channel 13 journalists are propagandists worse than in totalitarian states. So this is the climate in which this is all happening. And this is the plan uh, by the government to essentially, let's put it gently, fund the channel that the government supports and uh, let's say weaken or uh, the, the other uh, mainstream media. Yeah, I think people who follow Israel and care about it should really be listening very closely to what you're describing and what we're describing throughout the conversation we've had so far, which is this is nothing less than a bid to remake uh, Israel, how it works to reshape its politics and political landscape across the board. I mean, weakening or removing any of those uh, institutions that in a liberal democracy hold power in check. Uh, that's what's going on here. And um, you don't have to be uh, some kind of leftist or critic of Israel to think that. That's why so many people from the you know deep establishment of Israel, the mainstream, the military, the other institutions, people who are deeply patriotic are so alarmed by what's happening. So this is, as you say, being watched uh, also from outside Israel, and especially from Washington. We have uh, seen a very, very interesting week in the um, sort of conversation connection between Washington and Jerusalem. And I think we have the perfect guest to talk to all of this about. Three key encounters in the relationship between the United States and Israel this week. One was the visit that wasn't, in the end, just a phone call between President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu. The second was an actual visit of Israel's President Isaac Herzog uh, to Washington. But the third, praised by one 
watcher of these events, the former Israeli diplomat Alon Pincus, was the visit that really matters. And that was an hour and a quarter in the Oval Office between Joe Biden and a journalist. Not just any journalist, but the three times Pulitzer Prize winner, the New York Times columnist and friend of this podcast, Tom Friedman. Tom Friedman, your column made the news on uh, in Israel and in the United States. The headline, Biden to Netanyahu, please stop trying to rush through your judicial overhaul. Build a consensus first. Essentially, America's president telling Netanyahu to stop through your column. Um, before we get into all of that, I just think for a lot of our listeners, they will be fascinated to know about the kind of the mechanics of this. It doesn't happen to most journalists where they get called in to the Oval Office like that. T- tell us about that. Well, it's great to be with uh, uh, you, Johnny, and, and, and you need. Um, there's some things I probably can't or won't talk about. But let me start from 30,000 feet, though. Um, something I realized this week Um What's going on in Israel is really the most, I think, significant democracy promotion initiative, grassroots, that I've ever covered. I mean, I I was in, I covered Occupy Central. I was in Tahrir Square. I was in the Maidan after. I was in Taksim Square. But I've never seen something 28 weeks in a row. And it is a remarkable thing. And I think the stakes are enormous uh, for a country that I care deeply about, uh, whose fate and future I care deeply about. I realized something this week when I got a email um, from a senior Israeli diplomat around the world after my column. It was on a Gmail account. And it just said two words. Thank you. Thank you. That meant a lot to me. I can see, we can both see that you're, you're holding back some emotion there, Tom, as you talk about this. Um, these, uh, people, um, and what they're doing is remarkable, but they have no ambassador. There, there's no Israeli embassy in Washington that's speaking up for them. That's explaining to American diplomats what they're doing. They have no ambassador. They have no American Jewish organization speaking up for them, speaking proudly of this amazing democracy movement. No one's speaking for them. And yet they show up 28 weeks in a row. It's, It's remarkable. And so I didn't start out doing this. I just, I'm just a columnist, you know, but I've what I've tried to do is in my own little way, and please don't take this any way other than a little way, I've tried to be their ambassador here to explain to people why this is important. And it's not easy because the inertia and the power of the entrenched forces are either neutral or quietly opposed. And when administration officials are caught up in that network, you know, of things, it's sometimes very hard for them to get out of it and actually get the real perspective because no, 
no one's explaining it to them, you know, and we must talk nicely to Netanyahu and we must do this, you know what I mean? And so, because I'm not tied into any of these things, and I really, I did turn 70 today. I just don't care what you say about me. Um, and I'm actually on vacation. I've been writing these columns coming back from vacation. In fact, it's a joke on the editorial page of the New York Times. I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm off this week, but I'm going to come back. I'm off this week, but I'm going to come back. Yeah. Um, because vacation can wait. This is so important what these people are doing. And, um, because I've been doing this a long time, I know where the bodies are buried. I know every game, every play Netanyahu has ran. I have decided for myself, I'm going to do everything I can to alert people to just what's going on. And uh, I fortunately have a long relationship with President Biden because uh, when he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he invited me to go with him to Afghanistan and Pakistan right after the fall of Kabul. In fact, we stayed in the basement of the U.S. Embassy. It wasn't even open. And we've been friends ever since. Mm-hmm. And I have enormous affection and respect for him. And, and um, uh, I, I, I think it's requited. So that's 30,000 feet what's going on. Um, and uh, from ground level... Basically, because I'm, I'm tied into a lot of networks, so I watched what happened. I, I was actually on Monday uh, going to an interview at DARPA, uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is this super secret sort of scientific thing that the Pentagon runs. And it was an appointment I had set up. It took me six weeks to set up. And so 15 minutes before I was going in, I got there early. So I was just sitting on a bench. My phone blew up. And one of the calls was from, I don't think you'll mind me saying, my dear friend, Yochanan Plessner, who runs the Israel Democracy Institute, who said to me, Tom, what happened? Biden just called Bibi. And Bibi came out and, and uh, they issued a picture of him smiling ear to ear, talking to the president. And Bibi said, I told the president, you know, we're just going to get through this reasonableness thing. And, and after that, I'll really try to pull the country together. And I'm thinking, holy mackerel, what are you talking about? That, that can't be. So I, I sent an email to a, a, a very senior administration official attentioning him to how this story was being manipulated in Israel. Because I, I knew what was going on. I mean, without even knowing it, I knew, I knew what Bibi was doing. And the White House hadn't issued a statement yet. So um, they came to realize what was going on. They issued a very clear statement that said, BB, the president said, we'll meet sometime in the future and reaffirmed Biden's position that this should be done through consensus. And that was what he told Netanyahu. But, you know, White House statements are not, they're not like, it's not like a headline in The Guardian or The New York Times. I mean, they, they, they go into the ether kind of thing. So I was invited to the state dinner between Modi and Biden um, two and a half weeks ago and spoke to the president there. And I um, told him at that dinner how proud I was to have him as my president speaking up and standing up for the democracy movement in Israel. And I wanted him to know how many people there appreciated it. And he did not know this, but I told him, do you realize how many Israelis are carrying signs in those demonstrations that say Biden 
save us. So I just wanted him to know that. Anyways, he said, um, let's get together and talk more about that, the Saudi thing, the world, you know, and which we do, you know, um, from time to time. I said, I'd love to. And by, this is the real truth, I shall confess to it. By pure accident, the meeting was scheduled an hour after Herzog left the White House. This was set up a week ago, okay? But in our business, when the door opens, you better walk through it. And so um, I prepped for that meeting by by sharing, you know, with my with my friends there, what was going on in Israel. You know, what I mean, how Netanyahu and Hanegbi were trying to spin this story. You know, and um, again, I won't go any deeper into it, but they weren't amused. You know, Joe Biden's a very dohri guy, but. Don't underestimate him. He is nobody's fool. And if you think he's out of it, you are exactly wrong. <laughs> okay. He can't play, you know, four sets of tennis these days, I'm sure. But his mind is like totally on it. And so when I got to the Oval Office, they already had a statement written waiting for me. That quote, I the, the on the record quote part of it which they handed to me when I sat down and then we talked, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, Joe Biden is an authentic, it is Kishka's uh, lover of Israel and his deep affection for the Jewish people. He, he, he wears it on his sleeve. He's very concerned about anti-Semitism, you know, what that could mean, you know, for Jews around the world. He's not anti-Netanyahu. He, he considers him a friend still. Still, really? Uh, yeah, uh, um, I, I would. I wouldn't say otherwise. If he, if it's mm-hmm. otherwise, I'd let him say it. Mm-hmm. But he wanted everyone to know exactly where he stood, which is only do a huge constitution, even though Israel doesn't have a constitution. You know, judicial overhaul of this nature, if you have a national consensus. We don't, we don't do constitutional amendments in this country by pushing them through in a few weeks with no expert witnesses and trying to uh, change the Constitution. And the president, God bless his heart, wanted to make sure that I understood that and wanted to make sure I shared that view with the world. And that's where it came from. First of all, we're not going to let it slip that it's your birthday today, which you mentioned. And I'm going to say nothing says happy birthday more than talking to two Jews on a podcast. But um, but happy birthday. But I want to connect to that quote that you, you know, that kind of changed everything. Because as you said, the the uh, readouts that the Netanyahu office uh, came out with after this conversation was entirely different. And the quote that you brought of President Biden said, among other things, please stop now, don't pass anything important without broad consensus, or you're going to break something with Israel's democracy and with your relationship with America's democracy, and you may never be able to get it back. What is that thing relating to American democracy, that break with America that you fear, that he fears, rather, that Israel won't be able to get back? That you have an independent judiciary, and any changes to that are done through a broad-based consensus. And the independent judiciary matters a lot to American officials because we're asked to go to the world court and defend Israel. Sometimes Israeli pilots 
or commanders on the assumption, the argument the United States uses is Israel has an independent judiciary that can bring to account lawbreakers in civil society and in the military. So you, the world court, don't need to get involved in this because we can vouch for the fact and we will protect Israel for the fact that it has an independent, credible judiciary. And if, if that is not the case anymore, how is the U.S. going to go to the world court? This government is involved in a dual dismantling. They are dismantling the judicial system and they are dismantling Oslo at the same time. And the two are interrelated, okay? Mm -hmm. The guy who is running this, Rothman, in the Knesset, is uh, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, he's trying to dismantle Oslo. On Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday, he's trying to dismantle the judicial system. The two go together. This is a dual dismantling. Now, what I told you, what I wrote there, that paragraph you read, you, that was my summary. This was all off the record. So it was just my, my summary of what the president was saying. But I did get a good laugh um, because all these right-wing uh, Israeli papers then called the White House spokeswoman, um, the president's spokeswoman, and said, are those quotes true and whatnot? And, and God bless her, too. She said, they were, they're all 100% accurate. You know? So these people are totally onto what's going on. But in, in their defense, as soon as I left there, they're onto Ukraine. They're onto, um, you know, uh, uh, some domestic... This is the president of the United States. He's not the president of Israel. So he can't, he can only do so much. He went remarkably far in what he said. The fact that he devoted as much as he did, and I would say 90% of the hour and 15 minutes I was there, we did talk about Israel and, and, and this issue, but we also talked about China and, and Ukraine and other things as well, because um, I, I have to cover those in my spare time. Um, <laughs> but again, there's a weight to these relationships. Um, the president is not a columnist. He can't just say, I'm just going to focus on this. Um, we're engaged with Israel. That's part of a dialogue with Saudi Arabia. Um, we're engaged with Israel, which is part of a, a strategic dialogue with Iran. I, as I've always tried to make clear in my columns, the intelligence sharing relationship, the military sharing relationship with Israel is as strong, if not stronger than ever. Um, because it goes to a complete different set of channels. And so mm -hmm. it makes me appreciate all the more the willingness and ability of the president to extract himself from this web of, of relationships, the weight of which is to really not rock the boat and for him to just stand up and with boat feet rock the boat. Um, people don't appreciate I think how how big a deal that was. Oh, Israelis got it because of the the way it played in Israel. But mm -hmm. I, I think you know Netanyahu is one of the most clever, most effective liars in global politics today. If you notice, who he gives interviews to. You know, it's only people who um, don't know the the true texture of the story. And that not to Israeli journalists. He gave only one in Hebrew. Such yeah. a sophisticated liar, too. And um, uh, unless you're paying close attention, and you know. Every fiber of the story. So there's, a, re there's a reason he only gives interviews to people who can't catch that. But anyway. then if this is the situation, why give Netanyahu in the first place this gift in the form of a conversation? Obviously, he's not being invited yet. And for a long time, he hasn't been. But it's still a sort of a gift to, to say, let's talk on the phone for 15 minutes 
Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I don't know this for a fact, so don't, mm-hmm. don't take this the wrong way. I have a feeling that um, maybe the president of Israel suggested that it would be a heck of a lot easier for me in Washington if, you know, this situation where you'll only talk to me, but you won't talk to him, that's a problem, you know, for, for the president. And I, I understand that. You know, I, I can see why. And so, and it's also for Biden, I think it was, let's get this off the table. I mean, it had become a thing, you know, that he wasn't inviting him and wasn't talking to him. And I think he just wanted to deflate that issue so we could go back and focus on the substance. You know what I mean? And no, I'll talk to him and I'll tell him just what I think. And um, and by the way, I'm actually for inviting Bibi to Washington right now, Machar, but on the condition that he know in advance, I'm just asking you two questions. Are you dismantling the judiciary? Are you not? And are you annexing the West Bank or are you occupying the West Bank pending negotiations? And I want to have a press conference and I'm going to pose those two questions for you. Otherwise, come, wonderful. We'll have a party on the White House lawn. You know, um, you and Sarah, Jill and me. But the price of admission is those two questions in public. What what came through in your column, Tom, very loud and clear was I thought the president's frustration with this situation. It breaks his heart, which, as you say, he wears on his sleeve when it comes to Israel. The bit that was missing from my reading of it was the sanction, the threat for Netanyahu if he goes ahead with this. Now, you've been covering this long enough to know that it's not beyond the bounds of reality for American presidents to use their leverage. Bush Sr. with Shamir government, the withholding of loan guarantees, $10 billion worth, unless Israel did, in that case, what the Bush administration then wanted. First of all, in your conversation with him, was there any stick to go with the words from Biden? And if so, what is that threat that might be hanging over Netanyahu, because as, you, as, as you've been making very clear, he and his government, the Bengavirs and Smotriches, they don't play by Marquis of Queensby rules. A heartbroken statement from the Oval Office, albeit delivered by you, doesn't make them change. Only a threat might make them change. So did you hear any of that? Yeah, I, I think those days are over, John, you know, where U.S. administrations will will do that for, for a very simple reason. You know, that was true in the Cold War when the stakes were much higher the strategic stakes for America. Don't take this the wrong way, but we just don't care enough anymore. Oh, you want to commit suicide? Gosh, that's really too bad. We we wish you wouldn't do that. But um, it's very hard in this case when it involves an internal Israeli issue. When it's Israeli-Palestinian, then you can at least imagine that. But when it's an internal issue, we've never, America, no American administration has ever, ever had to face that. It was about settlements. It was about, you know, things like that. Although, as you've explained, these things are interrelated and the one could lead to the other. But um, I told a senior administration official, I wanted to do a column one day. And if you, if you actually catalog U.S. State Department statements about Israeli settlement activity, um, in the West Bank, how many times they've used the term, we are troubled or we are, are you ready? Are you both sitting down? We are deeply troubled. <laughs> and it's just become a, a, a joke. So I actually was fantasizing with one of them. How, how about you let me write the statement one day? 
I'll give you trouble, okay? You know, and, and believe me, it was met with great enthusiasm. But again, you have to look at this from now a really 30,000 foot geostrategic view. Our relationship with China is unraveling. Um, our relationship with Russia has unraveled. The president's dealing with some giant tectonic plates. So whether there are thousand more Israeli settler homes or not, that's something that it's very unlikely that he's going to bring the wood out for because the political downside is big. The political upside is not that he knows where the base of his party is. Joe Biden is so much to the right of the base of the Democratic Party. It isn't even funny. You know what I mean? So, um, on Israel, you on, mean. on Israel. Yeah. So, so yeah. the, um, the stakes are just not big enough. We, we don't care. You know, the Middle East just isn't what it was for us in the Cold War. So, so why pay a political price? And, um, um my feeling is we should just say to Israel, you know, um, I mean, I just, you're on your own. You want to settle the whole West Bank? Um, do it, but don't call us. Don't call us. Look, I went to the Jim Baker School of Diplomacy. I traveled with Secretary Baker for all four years. I'm the one who gave him the line, you know, when you're serious, call us, 202-456-1414. When he said it at a congressional hearing, Margaret Tutwiler called me from the hearing and said, he said it. He finally said it. So that's always my attitude. And Baker's attitude was, um, I will use a two by four on you. You know what I mean? Um, but the stakes were different. Um, we were still competing for the Soviet Union with, for, for influence. This is the tragedy for Israel now. We just don't care enough. You know, hey, hey if we're, we're out of words, if this is what you want to do, if this is how you want to commit suicide, I'm going to tell you I'm deeply troubled. But I, I, I'm not going to pay the political costs of, of, of stopping you because that's an endless kind of game and we can't plug that dike and you're an elected government and this is what you want to do. That's, by the way, that's the real danger for Israel. It's not that we care too much. It's that we care too little. Um, and, and, and this judicial thing only because more than half of Israel is behind it. Um, and it touches the core of the relationship. That's why it's drawn the attention. It has not, not settlements, but what I've been trying to explain to, to people is that is there's a dual dismantling um, going on here. And um, so anyways. But, but that's exactly the point. I mean, even before the judicial overhaul entered our lives, you know, Israel had a problem. This is, of course, exacerbated by the makeup of this government with Smotrich and Ben-Gvir. And I wonder even if, if you know, the protest movement that you're very, uh, you know, attached to, many Israelis are, it succeeds. And the judicial overhaul is halted, halts. What does the relationship look like between both countries in a decade or in five years? You know, all you have to do is, um, look, both my daughters were born in Hadassah Hospital. One has an Israeli name, Orly. Mount Scopus? Uh, uh, in, in Karim. In Karim, okay. Uh, although we actually got pregnant in, in Beirut and my wife had a miscarriage in the Palestine hospital in Amman. So we almost had an Israeli and a, a Lebanese born and an Israeli born, you know, child by my girls. Cause they're my girls. You know I mean? They, you know, they, they're interested in this issue, but you go on college campuses to have to tell you guys, it, there's just, you know, um, pro Israel students are besieged and most just look at that and say, I just too messy. It's too, I, I don't want to be involved in that. I've, I've said this many times, much to his annoyance, which is why I keep repeating it. 
Um, if Bibi Netanyahu were invited to speak at the University of Wisconsin, the, the student union, the Israel Student Society at the University of Wisconsin decided to invite the Prime Minister of Israel to speak, they'd have to bring out the Wisconsin National Guard. There would not be enough local police to handle it. And by the way, another reason I actually like Netanyahu to be invited here, because I think the demonstration outside his hotel by Israeli Americans, forget Jewish Americans, would require significant police protection. Um, and so I would like him to actually taste that. But by the way, he's tasting the fruit of his endeavors, his and Dermer's endeavors, in another way. Who could have imagined this? Okay, the, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia wants a whole new strategic relationship with the United States. He wants a civil nuclear program. He wants the most advanced weapon we have and a NATO-like security treaty between our two countries. Part of his effort to persuade us is if you do that, you all know this, I will normalize relations with Israel, provided Israel gives me some cover on the Palestinians, undetermined what that is, okay? This administration is weighing doing that. This is a very serious matter, okay? But it would require some level of congressional approval. Now, if I were ranking the popularity of world leaders on among the base of the Democratic Party, the progressive caucus, I'm pretty sure that it's a competition between who would be last, Netanyahu or MBS, okay? Well, isn't this interesting? For Israel to get normalized relations with, 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 with Saudi Arabia, for, um, for America to have a new relationship with Saudi Arabia, it will require a Democratic president and the Democratic base of the Democratic Party. Hmm. Only Joe Biden can deliver this. By the way, if, if it were Trump, God forbid, or another Republican president, the number of votes you'd get for this from the base of the Democratic Party, the Democratic caucus, would be between zero and one, okay? So only Joe Biden and only the base of the Democratic Party can deliver this. Huge deal, okay? And who did Bibi Netanyahu and Ron Dermer spend a decade telling to go to hell? We didn't tell you? Israel's a Republican cause. Oh, we didn't tell you? Oh, and by the way, who needs Jews? They're all going to intermarry. We have evangelicals. Well, where are they now? The cunning of history. Sometimes you just have to sit back and really enjoy the show. So right now, the biggest strategic initiative to remake the Middle East depends on AOC. MBS, BB, meet AOC. And I must say, if it weren't more serious, I would pop popcorn, put up my shoes, and just watch the show. This is so delicious for anyone who's been following this story. Because your point here is they would need Congress's blessing for any kind of deal. I just want to press the point about what 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 um, sanctions there are there. I take fully your point about, in a way, for whatever Biden's personal feelings, strategically, the United States no longer cares the way it did. But, but you know, you'll need mention that intelligence cooperation, that relationship, which goes on almost regardless of the politics. Obviously, there's Iron Dome. That's a huge degree of dependency the Israelis have for their own security. Are you saying that even if 
As you and others have been warning, Israel goes the way of Erdogan's Turkey and Orban's Hungary. The United States continues to keep the Iron Dome going, continues to supply the intelligence cooperation, acts as if Israel were the Israel of before. And apart from a few, as it were, sort of tear-stained interviews like the one Biden gave you, actually nothing changes. I, I Johnny, after 40 years of following this thing, I, I'd be hard-pressed to predict otherwise. The weight and inertia of those relationships is so strong. And I'm not sure even advocating that it should change. I mean, these are these are deep security matters for which both sides have benefit. But I think where this will start to fray is if Ben Gvir and Smotrich and their friends are successful in um, dismantling Oslo, it will start to affect Jordan and Egypt, Jordan in particular. Jordan's stability is a national security interest to the United States. By the way, it's the national security interest of Israel as well. And it will start to affect Jordan. It's already affected the Abraham Accords. Everyone's taken a step back. Uh, the negative forum, I think, was, was postponed, you know. Um, and so I'm not here to tell you that, um, you know, the Arab states care more about the Palestinians than they do. They don't, it couldn't care less, but their populations do, and they do care at some emotional level. So that's, kind of how I, uh, I see it. The, the, but, but the base of the Democratic Party really matters. And if you want to know where the base of the Democratic Party is, just read what uh, the statement, which I, I thought was appalling, because um, I don't think it's true, by the head of the Democratic caucus in the House of Representatives, which represents basically 50% of all Democratic congressmen and women. Um, and she said Israel was a racist state. And she apologized mm -hmm. for that, took it back. Um, but it just shows you the, the 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 mood down there, you know. By the way, Bernie Sanders didn't attend Herzog's speech. There are people here just fed up with the whole thing. But for Joe Biden, um, if you actually took a vote in the Democratic Party, I mean, by the way, I I I had two senators call me, two very important senators call me before I went to see Biden because they knew I was going to see him to lobby me. And it was not on Netanyahu's behalf. So they're on very thin ice with this party. It's kind of interesting, you know, um, that there aren't even more Republicans trying to take advantage of this tension. Yes, Ted Cruz, you know, Tom Cotton, these knuckleheads, you know, Biden's anti-Semitic. But it's not like... Republicans are throwing their body in the way of, you know, to protect Netanyahu. You know, I mean, it's um, even they that has to do with the, with the isolationist mood that's infected the Republican Party. You know, I mean, these are people who don't want to support Zelensky. So you you got a um, and Biden knows um, that American Jews are with him, the vast majority. He knows American publics with him on this. He he feels no. Concerns. That's why he's so comfortable talking about it. He knows the public's on, um, on his side. Tom, we're almost out of time. You, you write in your very first answer. It was very clear. You feel very emotionally invested in this. I talked before about, or we talked about the frustration that you reported or felt by the president. But covering this, immersing yourself in this, in a country that you've been bound up with your whole life, I was going to say adult life, but it goes even before then, when you were a very young man, you've written about that. What is this doing to you? 
Well, you know, it's, um, you know, I came to Israel, people should recall, I didn't come from Vietnam or Paris or Washington. I came via Beirut. It's tragic to me to see what happened in Lebanon because I saw that country f- literally fall apart. And you know, Johnny, why it fell apart? Because there were a group of cynical politicians who said, I can hack away at this. I can hack away at it. And I can hack away at the system. And then when I take over, I'll be a little more responsible once it's mine. And, and you know what happened? One day, one hammer blow too many, and the whole thing fell apart. And they can't get it back. And that is my concern about Israel. And that is my concern about America. Because I, my daughter blessed me with a grandson um, a year and a half ago. And I've made it very clear, and I told President Biden this, and he got it exactly right. I only write about three things today. Trump, Ukraine, and Israel. Because my view is if Israel goes autocratic, if Ukraine goes Putin, and America, chas v'shalom, re-elects Donald Trump, the world I want to leave to my grandson will not be here. And so there is nothing more important to me right now than those three stories. And as I've told all my Israeli friends who are worried, let me just assure you about one thing. I am not tired at all. I have all the time in the world for this. And I don't give a flying petunia what anybody says about me. Okay? I know what I'm doing. I know why I'm doing it. And I am not tired. Tom, I mean, first of all, thank you so much for this conversation. And can we send you some peace of mind and some good news for your birthday? I think that is the... I would would love that. And thank you so much. My my pleasure. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Tom. That was an extraordinary conversation. Not because anything that we did. (laughs) I mean, it was extraordinary because of the way that he is attached to this story. It's not an usual everyday event. Um, He was clearly very emotional about this story and about caring so deeply about, you know, the demonstrations and the protests and the future of Israel. And he says, and I, I completely agree with the fact that he's saying what you should care about as Israelis is not... Americans who care too much. It's Americans who don't care. Um, That was very powerful. Yeah. I was really conscious, partly perhaps because today he turns, or as we spoke to him, he turns three score and 10 years, 70 years. He talked about that. And the sense that he is somebody who's so emotionally invested in Israel, but maybe is, I don't want to say the last of a dying breed, but you know, that kind of attachment, that deep involvement with Israel. He was saying, look, Joe Biden is the last in the democratic world, as in capital D party, who feels like that. But there are not many more, you know, columnists, observers of foreign affairs, American Jewish journalists who care about Israel the way Tom Friedman does. And he's saying, I'm not tired. I'm going to keep doing this. But, you know, looking over his shoulder, there aren't hordes and hordes of American Jews in his kind of position who are as bound up with Israel as he is. It's a lifelong attachment. And he conveyed to us how deeply he feels it, I think. And um, I think that would have been very affecting for people who are hearing it, um, that this is a fight he feels is his fight. 
We should hand out some awards uh, as tradition demands. Do we do we go positive with some Mensch uh, awards or do we go plunge into the I global? Say, I say plunge right in. I mean, plunge why? right in. I think that we should leave everyone with an optimistic tone. So end with Mensch is better. Okay, you're quite right. So let's uh, plunge right in. I think there can be next. Well, there is one little bit of competition which we'll come to, but I thought we would. Um, I thought we should go straight in with someone who brooks very little competition for the title of Chutzpah of the Week, uh, somebody who's committed an act of egregious cheek, to put it very, very kindly. And that is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., son of the former Attorney General of the United States, nephew of the former President of the United States. Uh, as people know, he is running what you might gently call a quixotic campaign to be president for the Democratic nomination. Most of his supporters come from the right. He is a guy who's made his name really being very anti-vax, very uh, sceptical, again, putting it gently, about the COVID-19 vaccine. Very big on conspiracy theories of one kind or other. Lots of commentators said it's only a matter of time before he goes you-know-where. And, well... What took him so long, you ask? <laughs> what took him so long? He's gone there. Robert Kennedy Jr. claimed that COVID-19 was an ethnically targeted bioweapon that spared certain ethnic groups. Again, I invite our listeners, can you guess who? <laughs> um, who was spared by this special weapon, according to RFK Jr.? Chinese people, but also Ashkenazi Jews. Uh, very, he says, very specific on that, particularly oh yeah. Ashkenazi Jews. Okay. COVID-19 is targeted to attack Caucasians and black people, he says. Uh, the people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese. And then Trump, Trump, a very sort of Trumpian flourish here, he then adds he's uncertain whether it was deliberate, deliberately targeted or not. You know that Trump manoeuvre of always going, I don't know, nobody knows that, nobody <laughs> knows. I just heard that. So he does that. And in this, but he makes sure before doing it that he's done this uh, mention that the one ethnic group singled out apparently by COVID, he said it, he was caught on video saying it, uh, is Jews. Of course, no evidence of that. We should say plenty of Ashkenazi Jews got COVID like everyone else. And in fact, they've been stepping forward, bereaved families of those who died with COVID saying, you know, there was no ethnic targeting here. We got the disease and we suffered. Uh, so bad news. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he, uh, I think, in a normal week might brook no competition, as I said, for going there and uh, bagging our chutzpah uh, of the week nomination. We've been doing this podcast for 113 episodes. Has there ever been a normal week? No. I mean, come on. No. Pretentious on your part, but okay. I mean, that's an, I, 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 fair candidate. I'm just throwing in another option. An employee, uh, unnamed, by the way, an employee of the Western Wall Heritage Foundation, the Kotel, part of the, the basically the most sacred place for the Jewish uh, people, this week asked a Christian abbot to hide his uh, cross while he was walking there. Uh, she said it was inappropriate for him to walk that way near the Western Wall. He was, by the way, accompanying uh, German's uh, federal minister of education. So the whole thing was filmed and the whole thing happened in front of her. Obviously quite an embarrassment and in the sense that Israel has already had pictures recently, especially there, there are a few incidents of ultra-Orthodox, you know, spitting at, at nuns and all kinds of these issues. So that is not a good 
good addition. Now, the uh, Kotel uh, Heritage Foundation, the Western Wall Heritage Foundation has said, no, 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 of course, we don't have any <laughs> requests from people to hide their crosses. We just, she just wanted to protect him from any responses that he might receive. This is all, again, not a good look for us. We should say that for many ultra-Orthodox Jews, the site of a cross or anyone walking in the Western Wall with a cross would, would seem somewhat offensive. They would say that it's a little bit like walking into a mosque with shoes on and not taking off your shoes. It doesn't really matter in the sense that you shouldn't really embarrass someone in this kind of situation, I think. I, I mean, we talked about it before. You mentioned the spitting um, episode. At what point, I asked myself, do evangelical Christians, uh, who are Israel's most staunch uh, supporters in the United States, at what point do, do they begin to get a little uncomfortable with how mm. Christianity is being uh, treated by people, particularly on that kind of you know, far-right spectrum in Israeli politics, not saying that was the case with this official, but you know, it, there's a, people's patience is not infinite. And so you do wonder if eventually this uh, gets uh, noted. So um, yeah, a couple of very worthy winners of our Chutzpah of the Week award. But as you said, we want to end on a cheerier note. We've talked about how the media are bracing for a bit of a battering in Israel, but you have, Yonit, a rather uh, worthy winner for Mensch of the Week. So our Mensch of the Week, uh, and I like this story a lot, is uh, Theo Baker. He's son of two wonderful journalists, uh, Peter Baker and Susan Glazer, and he's an 18-year-old freshman at Stanford University. He broke a huge story in the Stanford Daily, and it's a story about Stanford's president. This is what he was looking into, and it led at the end to the resignation of the president. This is, Theo was digging into all kinds of uh, stories about the president and how he falsified scientific data that, that was then published. You know, all this led to an investigative, pretty long investigation at the end of the day, Stanford's president had to resign. So this is a lovely story, I think, of two things. One, journalism matters. And two, university newspapers matter. I think um, at least one or two people in the Friedland household can share that sentiment. Definitely can. Um, I was a student journalist myself, or, but really breaking a story like this when you're 18 years old. <laughs> I mean, that is amazing. We should say that strictly speaking, the, what the research showed was that the uh, manipulated research data was by members of the lab under Dr. Tessier Levine, who was the head of Stanford, but he did not take sufficient steps to correct the record. Uh, amazing uh, a bit of uh, student journalism, uh, as I say, 18 years old and breaking a story that has that impact that the president himself saw fit to resign from the head of really a major uh, academic institution. So Theo Baker and the Stanford Daily are Mensch of the Week. If you have enjoyed this week's podcast, do share the love. You know how to do it at Unholy Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Many, many other platforms are available. I haven't yet got into threads. And if you have your need, but if you have, you can talk about Unholy there. You can tell your friends. You can meet people IRL <laughs> and tell them face to face that you listen to Unholy. That's very strange uh, we notion. We are indeed, and we will uh, say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, and Rom Atik. And we will meet next week, which will be our last season three episode. Jonathan, so yeah, I hope you're gearing up for it. Before we take our summer break. Okay, I look forward to it. We'll see you then. See you then.
This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.